0: Amen. Did you guys know there was a cross back there? <laughs> oh, man, we got to break the projector more often. <laughs> Good morning, church. What a joy to be together today. And I, I know I say that all the time, but man, I mean it today. Uh, it, you know. I, so I, I got a few weeks off preaching up here, and I thank you guys for that. It allowed me to get a couple background projects for the church done over the last month, but also allowed me to stay at home and take care of the kids so Kim could go help lead at youth camp this summer, and we saw God move in powerful ways through that. So thank you guys for doing that. What a what just a joy and a privilege. I wanna, before we get into it, we're gonna be uh, in Matthew 7 today, but before we get into it, I wanna invite you really quick into two of the projects that I got to work on in the background for our church. Uh, one of them, really quick, is that we're gonna be launching up um, a, an intentional prayer team here uh, at Emmanuel to pray over what God is doing, to pray for lostness in our community, to just be involved in a lot of those different things. And so if that's something you are even slightly interested in, if prayer is a spiritual gifting for you or something you want to grow in in your spiritual disciplines, talk to me or talk to uh, Brittany Jordan, uh, the, our deacon. Um, And the second one, this one is pretty big, and we're gonna talk about this a lot more in the coming weeks, but I wanna make sure you guys uh, hear it as quickly as we can. One of the structural visions for Emmanuel Fellowship Church, literally from before we planted as a church, is that we would have a biblical and committed membership process and structure within our church. Both joining churches that became Emmanuel had different histories and practices as regarded church membership. And so we wanted to make sure we took our time praying, seeking, fleshing this out. Uh, and I think we're ready to launch it at this point, which I'm excited for. I'll be, so again, I'll be speaking about this more in the weeks to come. But for this morning, there are three things I want you guys to hear about what that means for our church. Uh, the first one is this. Our first new members class will be Sunday evening, August 6th. Uh, so you can, I think we'll have signups for that. We may even have them uh, right now. Uh, over, we'll have those over the next several weeks as we get ready and prepare for that class. Uh, the second thing is this: if you want to be a member at Emanuel Fellowship Church, you have to attend the members' class. This this is a uh, nobody's grandfathered in. Where we're we're, we're going to invite our entire church to kind of sync up on this, myself included, right? Like this is something that we think will be good and healthy for us. And the third one is this: uh, church membership is not required for access to the life of Emanuel Fellowship Church. I want you guys to hear that piece. Really clearly, we believe passionately uh, that church membership is about individual Christians and individual local churches committing themselves to one another. Uh, This isn't something where we talk about separate classes within the church of members and non members. Membership is about you deciding that God has called you specifically to this local church and wanting to commit to be a part of what God is doing here. Uh, That doesn't get you any special access to literally anything. Uh, And so if you're just like, man, I'm here and I'm still checking out, or you're like, man, I'm here and I'm not comfortable with membership. It's all gravy, baby. We're glad you're here. You keep hanging out. Uh, but this is something that we think is good and healthy for the life of our church, and so we're gonna uh, be rolling that out in the coming weeks and months, so I'm excited about that. Okay, Whew. back into Matthew. So if you wanna go ahead and turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter seven, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible with you, we have house Bibles around the room, just look underneath the seats in front of you, you will, you'll find them, they're around. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be finishing out the Sermon on the Mount today. Now, even though we've still got plenty of time, and trust me, I mean plenty of time, uh, left in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Like we're only at chapter 7. I don't know if you've looked ahead. There are 28 chapters in Matthew, guys. We've already been in here a while. It's going to take a hot minute to get there. We have plenty of time left in Matthew. But man, hasn't this time in the Sermon on the Mount just been great? We've been working through this since February, and I don't know about you guys, but I have just been so blessed by coming together as a church and just us picking through this, these teachings from Jesus directly to us as church, right? Him getting to hear Jesus talk about, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. This is what I desire for my followers. Like, what a... What just a beautiful thing and a privilege this has been. I hope it has been for you, at least as it's been for me. This is, this is something that is just, it's just been cool. But this closing text in Matthew 7, this is a text that is particularly precious to me in my own faith journey as a pastor, but just as a Christian. This is a text that Christ has brought me back to at just specific important points in my faith. And I have been eagerly awaiting our time discussing this text. The, the reason is this. Because we live in a moment in, in time and in culture where what I'm going to call churchianity, and, and, and I'll come back to that term a little bit today, churchianity isn't really socially punished enough yet to kill it. Now, if, if you're not 100% sure what that last sentence meant, stick with me. What I'm essentially saying is this. A cultural faith, a nominal faith, a, faith, a Christianity that is in name alone It's still an easy trap to fall into in our culture, especially, by the way, if you grew up in a churched family. It can be rewarding socially, emotionally, relationally to play at church without actually taking the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously. And guys, this text today calls this out in the strongest possible terms. And I think it will be good for us to pick into this. At the end of the day, beloved, life on this earth is simply too difficult and too painful for empty cultural religion to be worth it. It just isn't. If your faith ends at a nominal cultural Christianity, then the suffering of this world will ultimately lead you to simply live like everyone else, It's what's going to happen. It's unavoidable. A life of belief in Jesus, but here this church, a life of obedience to Jesus is the only life that will actually weather the suffering involved in living out your life on a cursed world. It's the only way that will get you there. I know we're starting out strong out of the gate, but you gotta give me a little grace. I have been out of the pulpit like three weeks, right? So this is a little, it's a little pent up. Okay, Matthew 7. If you wanna read this with me, we're gonna start in verse 24. It says this, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. And It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. And this, beloved is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me, church. Father, we ask this morning, as we take a few minutes, to consider your word. God, I want to ask for myself, for every one of us in this room, that you would speak loudly and clearly to us today. That you would speak to us afresh today, Lord. I know for many of us, we have been involved in church and faith and seeking you long enough that we have just figured out what areas of our life we don't want to submit to you. And when we hear your spirit picking convictionally at those areas, we do everything we can to ignore it, to move on, to get back uh, to just life as normal. God, I pray that today, in your grace, you would speak to us afresh. That you would pick at those things again. That you would give us one more chance another in your grace opportunity to walk in real repentance and real obedience, Lord. We want to be your children who actually hear you and believe you and follow you. We want your gospel to actually change our lives and change our church and change our community. God, we need you for this work. So we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So this is how Jesus chooses to close out the Sermon on the Mount. He has covered so much in these preceding chapters as he's explored what is the kingdom of God. What does life look like when one is living with faith in the kingdom? We've talked about a lot of different stuff. We've learned about how God blesses those that the world writes off, right? We've learned about how regardless of what poor teaching might say, God cares about people's hearts, not just their actions. We've seen how the kingdom life seeks to to pour out oneself to glorify God and serve others. We've seen how the kingdom life is difficult, that many people don't actually find it, that many falsely claim to represent it, but they don't. We've gone through a lot, right? And all of this comes together today in Jesus' conclusion, and he chooses to end this amazing sermon with a short little parable. A parable, an an illustrative story to prove a spiritual point. So what is Jesus' story here, and what do we see in it? Well, Jesus ends his sermon by talking about his audience. His ending parable is a warning to those who are listening to him, right? Now, he's kind of loaded the whole landing of the sermon with warnings, right? Like a whole bunch of Matthew 7 is about warning listeners, make sure to stick to the narrow path, watch out for false prophets, not who claim to follow me, really follow me, right? Like that's kind of where we've been the last couple paragraphs in Matthew 7. But here, our text starts out with a therefore, And when we back up and look to see what it's there for, we see that Jesus is gathering all those warnings together into this closing parable. And in this parable, he contrasts the two kinds of listeners in his audience. You see this? One who listens to Jesus and puts his teaching into practice, and one who listens to Jesus and does not put his teaching into practice. Guys, it's really important to see here who Jesus is actually contrasting. He's contrasting his audience. I feel like it's easy for us as church people when we hear this kind of thing to be like, yeah, Jesus is talking about the people who follow him and the people who reject him and run away from him. And there is a technical truth in that, but it's easy to miss the fact that Jesus is speaking to everyone who's gathered around him right now. He's speaking to the people who enjoy listening to him. Both sides of this parable are people who've listened to Jesus' words, not just heard them in passing, but listened to them, given of their time and energy to hear what Jesus has to say. Guys, this is about followers of Jesus and true followers of Jesus. That's who he's contrasting here. Remember, Jesus began this sermon with just his closest followers, the apostles and that closest group around him, right? He gathered them around him and he began to teach. But Jesus isn't a guy who can just sit and teach in public to 25 people. People show up. The crowd gets bigger. Thousands gathered around to hear this teaching. And even though he's speaking to his closest followers, to the apostles and those around them, those who've left everything to follow him, he's also speaking over their shoulders, to those who've gathered to hear. And beloved, what Jesus warns these people of should cause us to stop and consider. It's an intense warning and an important warning. He contrasts folk who hear him and obey his teaching with folk who hear him and don't act upon his teaching, as though one is a wise builder and one is a foolish builder. The one who hears Jesus' words and obeys them, who acts upon them, they're like a wise builder who's built his house on a bedrock foundation. Bad weather comes, and his house survives the bad weather. In contrast, the one who hears Jesus' words and doesn't obey them, who doesn't act upon them, is like a foolish builder who builds their house upon the sand. The bad weather comes, and their house fails completely. It collapse with a great crash. The emphasis here, guys, is total loss. Nothing survives it. Now, to really understand Jesus' parable here, we're going to have to take a second to talk about the region of Galilee and its geology. Now, listen, I'm no geologist, but I happen to be related to two of them. So I called this week. I made a phone call, gathered some data. I reached out. Uh, and, And there's this thing in Galilee called Alluvial sand or alluvial gravel, which is, um, is, is made out of stuff called alluvium. Now, if you're smarter than me, you're like, ah, yes, I know what that word means. I did not. Uh, and so here's, here's what it basically means. This is, this is a deposit of different kind of, a mixture of different kind of minerals that forms naturally in a place where water flows, right? It's, it's stuff that was deposited by moving water. And in general, it's a mixture of sand, gravel, soil, silt, and clay, right? And so when you've got a place where water moves really fast and then stops moving really fast, this alluvium gets deposited. And it exists in certain parts of the world. There's some in Alaska. There's a whole lot of it in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, around the Jordan River. And the reason is because that's a part of the world that experiences a rainy season and a dry season. So there's a part of the year where there's a lot of rain, a lot of water, and the banks overflow, and everything gets really wild, and then it all dries up. And what's left on the shores is this alluvial gravel. And if you, if you actually walk around and look at the shores of the Sea of Galilee, it's not a beach the way we think of it. That's not sand that like crunches under your feet. It looks kind of like someone made concrete and mixed way too much gravel into it. It's bumpy and hard and sharp and not fun to walk on. And that's all around the Sea of Galilee and up and down on huge parts of the Jordan River. Now, why did I share all that with you guys? Well, here's the reason. When this stuff sits around long enough in the sun, it bakes. And it doesn't. it's not sandstone the way you think of it at the beach where you can kind of grab it and crumble it in your hand. This stuff gets as hard as concrete in a very literal sense, right? Like you would need pickaxes and masonry bits to drill into it. It gets very, very hard. It looks about as solid as it can look. But because it has clay and silt mixed into it, the second water soaks into it, it turns back into sludge. Now, this stuff exists all around that region, and the people of that region understood that. We actually have really strong archaeological evidence. They understood, hey, you can't build on this stuff. It's everywhere. And if you, if you were to move to Galilee at the right time of year, you'd be like, dang, it's pretty easy to build here. There's pretty much just concrete foundations everywhere. But the people who live in that region understood that's not how it works. You've got to dig through that stuff, that stuff that is as hard as concrete. You've got to break it up and smash it and dig it out of the way, and you have to build on an actual bedrock foundation because if you don't, 10 months from now when the rains show up, you don't have a house anymore. That's how it works. And we have archaeological evidence that they did exactly that. We found evidence of, of augered anchors sunk down into, this, into the bedrock beneath this stuff in that region. This was common knowledge Amongst these people. But here's what I think is interesting about this. To build one's house on the bedrock, guys, this is brutal work. It's backbreaking. It's not just shoveling sand out of the way to get down to the rock, it's breaking up two or three feet of concrete to get down to the rock. It's backbreaking work. And if you're not from that region, if you don't understand the reason behind it, it seems like pointless work, right? Because you're sitting there going, you are doing, you are just working your butt off to dig through all this perfectly good rock so you can build your house on that other rock. That makes no sense. It looks like pointless work. Until the rain shows up, right? The minute the rain shows up, all of a sudden it makes complete sense <laughs> why you made that decision. If you built that house on the alluvial gravel, you don't have a house anymore. Guys, and I think this is important when we think about the parable. You notice the bad weather shows up for both builders, right? It's not like one of them listens to Jesus's words and acts upon them, and they build an awesome house, and nothing bad ever happens to them. No, no, no. The bad weather shows up for, one, for both builders, and it's, it's the mother of all bad weather that is explained here. There's rain, there's flooding, there's storms, there's wind, which, by the way, that's not unheard of in this region. Some of the unique aspects of the geography around the Sea of Galilee means that storms sweep in fast, and they're wild. They're wild. This is the kind of thing that could very easily happen. So the house built on bedrock survives. The house built on gravel survives collapses, its foundation dissolves into sludge because at the end of the day, it has no foundation. looked like it had one back when things were dry. doesn't look like it has one anymore. I think what we see in this, guys, is that living life in this cursed and broken world means that trials and suffering are unavoidable. It's the reality of living life in this world. We live in a world where terrible things happen and they happen to everyone. Jesus doesn't say that being a part of his kingdom will preserve your comfort and save you from suffering. No, the reality is that suffering is your companion as a human being until Christ returns and restores all things. It's a hard truth, but that is a truth. The kingdom of God does not change whether or not you face trials. It changes whether or not you endure them. It changes how you survive them. The house built on the bedrock of obedience to Jesus teaching withstands the storm. And the home built upon sandstone, the sandstone of disregard of Jesus' teaching falls apart completely. So what does this mean for us? Well, guys, I think this parable, when you get down to it, is actually pretty simple. Jesus is the only foundation for a solid life in this broken and cursed world. Period. Period. Now, There's something interesting here. Because I think we hear that kind of phrase in church and we're like, yeah, of course, Jesus is the foundation for life in this world. That makes sense. And I think the reason is because there's a certain kind of fake cultural religion that we're more used to addressing. And that's legalistic religion. So that, one, that one's like an easier one for us to pick at. When we, when we consider folk who like, they spend their time trying to earn God's favor by following all the rules and doing everything just right and working, 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 working in their life is about obedience and, and the kind of self-earned righteousness. Like, it's easy to see how the gospel just picks that apart. It's easy to see how the Sermon on the Mount even says, hey, that's not how it works. God blesses those that the world casts off, those who are really bad at their faith. Like, that's who God's actually blessing and the kingdom is theirs. like, It's easy to pick at that kind of side of it, that legalistic, like trying to earn your righteousness piece. But Jesus here is warning us of the flip side of that. He's warning us of a a cultural churchianity, that I'm gonna call it, that just says, I actually don't care about obeying what Jesus said. I just like the stuff he says. It's pretty and comforting. That's what Jesus is warning us about here. And what he warns us is, hey, if that's your deal, if that's as far as your faith goes, if you just show up and go, man, Jesus is so encouraging. He's really helping me live my best life. Like, I just feel so self-actualized when I sit through a gospel-centered sermon. If, If that's the depths of your faith, Jesus says, okay, you can make that choice. But man, the minute life gets hard, that's gonna do nothing for you. That's not gonna help you through suffering. That's not gonna help you through the reality of the curse that's not going to help you. It's just going to fall apart. There's nothing there. It's hot air. Beloved, this parable is directly challenging this kind of churchianity, cultural Christianity. A faith engagement that enjoys the words of Jesus and enjoys the trappings of his church, but without any real heart change or any real life change. Beloved, let's not deceive ourselves. This is an easy trap to fall into. In some ways, especially if you grew up in church, it's easier to fall into this one than the legalistic one. It's easy to see involvement in church life as important. And when you show up to to Sunday gatherings and to small groups, you find a friend group. And as you get involved in the church community and do activities together, because even in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward Christian faith, there can just be enough individual benefits, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, to to plugging yourself into a faith community, that you can just do that for the benefits. I don't know, I'm old, it's hard to find friends. When I go to church, I find people, we can hang out and we schedule it, we build it into our time together, and we get to you know, do the cool stuff. We sing songs and it's encouraging, I don't know, I like it. It's easy to fall into that trap, especially if you're a church person, especially if you grew up going to Sunday school, right? We can all admit that, right? In other words, we all know how easy it is to be the crowd on the edge, to hear bits and pieces of scripture and sermons and oftentimes be encouraged us. I mean, how great is it to be reminded that Jesus loves you in spite of your sin? That's great. Hey, I'm terrible, and Jesus still loves me. That feels pretty wonderful. And if you're in a church where people are actually practicing your faith, you'll find out that the Christians actually treat you in ki- with kindness in a world that can be really unkind, right? It's really easy to lull ourselves into a cultural identity as a Christian all the while avoiding the plain reality that you have not submitted your actual heart to Jesus as your Lord. One way to say this is, it's a lot easier in our cultural moment, our time, to think of Jesus as our loving Savior than to think of him as our authoritative Lord and God. What Jesus is getting at here, beloved, is you need both. They go together together. I have news for you, church. Jesus is not content to have you hang out with him for a couple hours a week and sing a couple songs and hear about how cool he is and then move on with your life. That's not enough for him. Jesus wants all of you. He wants the deepest parts of you. He wants you to to, to see his gospel. He doesn't just want to forgive you and include you in his kingdom. He wants to change you from the inside out, to make you into a new creation, to draw you fully from the darkness of this broken and cursed world, from the reality of sin and evil that has affected you and crushed you and destroyed you, to, to, to mold you into the son or daughter he made you to be, to bring about real sanctification, real freedom, real life, the actual life you were built for not content for anything less than that. There's no halfway with him. He wants all of you. Jesus is teaching the word of God, guys. It doesn't exist to grow your self-esteem. Not that there's anything wrong with viewing yourself rightly and soberly, right? That's just not what the teaching of Jesus is for. The Word of God is living and active. It cuts, it pierces, it divides between body and soul, beloved. The gospel of Jesus should change you. And I don't mean just change your Sunday morning schedule two to three times a month. I mean it should change you. It should affect the way you think. It should affect the way you act. Should change the decisions you make day by day and moment a moment. Beloved, the reality of Jesus should cause you to consider life differently. The reality of Jesus should cause you to consider your work differently. You don't work like everyone else. You don't cut corners like everyone else. You don't seek material success like everyone else. You don't engage in conflict like everyone else. The reality of Jesus should cause you to consider your marriage differently. You don't seek to take or receive like everyone else. You don't aim the relationship around personal fulfillment like everyone else. The reality of Jesus should cause you to consider your children differently. You don't see them as a burden like everyone else. You don't teach them to take and focus on self like everyone else. You don't discipline them out of your anger and annoyance like everyone else. The reality of Jesus should cause you to consider your time differently. You don't live For your own comfort and your own pleasure like everyone else. The reality of Jesus should cause you to consider your money differently. You don't worship creature comforts and pleasures like everyone else. Beloved, I could go on and on, but you see what I'm getting at. Jesus changes everything. The gospel of Jesus speaks into every aspect of your soul speaks into the deepest parts of your person and beloved. It speaks into the minutia of your day-to-day life. The little things, the decisions you make about how to treat the people around you, the decisions you make about how to schedule and order your time, the decisions you make, the little ones, Jesus speaks into them. Because he's not content with just this. He wants you Beloved, he loves you. He sees you. He sees the way sin has wrecked you. He sees all the terrible decisions you've made, all the evil you've done. He sees all the evil that's been done to you, all the wrongs and injustice you've experienced for no reason other than you were stuck being born in a cursed and broken world. He has compassion on you. He desires good for you, life for you, freedom for you. And he's just not willing. He's just not willing to go halfway. He wants to see you completely restored. Made into the creation. He made you to be. He's not content with followers who hear a message of love, feel good about themselves, and go on with their lives for the glory of their own flesh. The kingdom of God requires all of you. Christianity requires all of you. Beloved, following Jesus means that you make a willful choice to submit to him and obey him. If you don't, you're not following Jesus. You may enjoy him. You may like the time you get. And by the way, that just may be where you're at in your faith journey. You may just be a crowd on the edge of the crowd listening and deciding what you think, and you are allowed to do that but if you're not obeying Christ, you're not following him. You don't get to just say, I want Jesus as my savior, but I'll figure out the Lord stuff later. (laughs) There's one Jesus. He's your savior and your Lord. He is the lover of your soul and your best friend and the creator God of the universe who holds the stars in the palm of his hand, who speaks creation into existence, who sustains reality by an act of his own will, you don't play games. <laughs> if you want him, you get him. But you got to take all of him. Whew. And this is such a deceptive trap. It's such a deceptive trap because churchy unity looks from the outside in like real faith. It looks the same. It's, it's right, like it's, it's those people who show up in Galilee and they move there for the first time in the wrong time of year and they go, This looks like concrete to me. Looks fine to me. Churchianity looks like real faith. You show up on Sundays, you're plugged into programming. Heck, you might even tithe. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you can do all those things. You can do all those things. You might build your closest friendships, your Deepest circle of connection through your church. But, beloved, if your life is not submitted to Christ, you are a fool who thought sandstone was rock. That may look firm right now, but I'm telling you, suffering will test the truth of your faith. Period. Hardship will test the truth of your faith. Pastor Jim has this thing he says often, and I hate it, but it's so true and it's so important. (laughs) He says, trials don't create sin in your heart. They reveal what was already there. Right? When life falls apart, when your day goes to heck, (laughs) goes to heck, (laughs) when things go terribly and you're totally dysregulated and life is no longer enjoyable and things are going badly and there's real suffering and people you care about are hurting, what does your response look like? you cling to Christ, or do you respond just like everyone else? It's a really important question, because I'm here to tell you sin is real. You don't need me to tell you that, but can we all remember that for a minute? The curse is real. Terrible things happen in this world. And the reality is, churchianity, fake feel-good faith, is simply not strong enough to carry you through real suffering. Because this world can cook up some pretty awful stuff. And I know pretty much all of us in this room can attest to that from personal experience or at least from those we love who are close to us. This world can cook up some awful stuff. And a fake faith, a faith based on feel-goods, a faith based on cultural identity that doesn't actually change your real person, beloved, it will fail you. It is not strong enough to carry you through. It is not strong enough to keep you in the midst of suffering. It'll fail you and your faithful disintegrate the minute, the minute the curse brings its full weight to bear upon you. James gives a similar warning in the opening chapter of his letter to the church in James 1. Read this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, thus deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, Well, he's like someone who looks at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres, who is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, that person will be blessed in his doing. Beloved, to hear Jesus' words and not act upon them, it's the height of foolishness. It's like looking in a mirror and then immediately forgetting what you look like. Now, this is a strange image, but I think it's an important one for us. Because the Word of God is living and active. It reveals your true heart. It shows you as we really are. And we all know, if we're willing to be honest, that our true selves is an absolute tangled mess of sin, love, and inconsistency. Right? It's all in there. You're trying to bat your best. You're trying to be a kind and godly person, but you also know you love sin, and it's just all in there, and it's a mess. Those of us who follow Christ long enough, we long to live as he commands. But every single time we see ourselves soberly in reality, we're reminded of all the ways that we live just like the world, and all the ways that we actually love living just like the world. We are a mess. Of sin and righteousness all together in the same show and because of this as because, because of this it's so easy to hear the word and i mean really hear the word to have a moment where the holy spirit shuts out the distractions and speaks to you clearly and you see yourself soberly for a minute and you know what i'm talking about those moments at church or retreat or wherever where the spirit speaks afresh into some area of your life that he desires to sanctify But if we've been in this game long enough, a lot of us have had that moment where the Spirit does that and we see that piece of ourselves, that piece that God is calling us to repent of, to hand over to Him, to find freedom in. And we just don't believe that aspect of our person can or will change. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've prayed for God to free you from that sin or that idol or that trauma or that injustice for years. And you simply can't imagine a world where you just walk in freedom from it. So you get that fresh conviction of the Spirit saying, hey, turn this over to me. Turn this over to me. I want to see you walk in holiness and freedom. And you immediately push it down and push it away. You want to get back to normal because it's easier to sit in the Christian niceties of Jesus loves you than to actually address the deeply rooted wounds and sin in your life. Beloved, that, that is to look into a mirror and immediately forget what you look like. Beloved, the Spirit speaks truth to you. He shows you the reality of your broken self, and you gotta know something, that's painful. That's not pleasant. But to ignore his voice? To walk away from the mirror and try and forget what you look like? That's dangerous. It's painful to be sanctified, no one likes having chunks of ourselves carved off, right? It's painful to be sanctified. But to ignore it, to ignore it is dangerous. There is not life to be found in that, beloved. That is to deceive yourself. That is to build the house of your faith on spiritual cliches. It may look nice, it may feel solid, but one good round of real suffering will show you what it is. It's trash. The truth of it, no. to be confronted by the words of Jesus and to actually obey them? Beloved, that is hard. It's painful. But hear this, beloved. It's life. It's freedom. It's life because there is no sin so dark that Jesus cannot forgive it. Hear that, church. I don't care how long you've been habituated to that sin. I don't care how deeply rooted it is. I don't care how much of your person you define yourself by with that sin. There is no sin so deep, so strong, so powerful that the blood of Christ is not able to defeat it. There is no sin you can commit that Christ cannot forgive, that his sacrifice on the cross is not sufficient for. Beloved, there is no addiction in your life that is so powerful that Christ cannot overcome it. There is no trauma or evil or sin or awfulness that can be done to you that is more powerful than the blood of Christ. It does not matter, beloved. You need to know. You need to know. Satan, sin, the curse, they threw everything they had at Christ. The weight of God's wrath for sin was poured out on Christ. Everything. The most, the most intense suffering you can imagine. The, the deepest The most awful of what the curse has, every bit of it put on Christ's shoulders. And you know what his response was? To resurrect from the dead because death has no hold on him. Because he has authority over the curse. There is nothing in you, no matter how deeply rooted, no matter how intense, no matter how dark, no matter, there is nothing in you that Christ is not able to sanctify. That is beyond the power of your Jesus. So yes, Yes, there is life to be found in sanctification. It'll be painful to look in the mirror, to see yourself soberly, to let the Holy Spirit cut and show you all the ways you fall short of the kingdom. That is painful. It's painful to have the sinful, broken, ruined parts of you cut out and reformed in the likeness of Christ. That is painful, beloved. But that is where your life is found. That is where freedom is That is the bedrock upon which to build a life. Beloved, there is life in the kingdom of God. There is freedom in the kingdom of God. Jesus is right there for you. Don't just hear him. Don't just listen to him. Give yourself to him fully. Allow him to invade every aspect of your life. Build your faith upon Christ. Christ the solid rock. Christ, your Savior, Christ, your Lord, Christ, your King, Christ who reigns. Build your faith, not just upon his love, but upon his authority, upon his holiness. Because, beloved, that is a real stone. That will not fall. And it will not fall because Jesus won't let it. He will sustain that faith. He'll keep you to the very end. Chris, if you want to come back up. Because if you remember how this text ends, Jesus finishes his parable, and the crowd just sits there going, That's nuts. He's not like our teachers. He speaks like one who has authority. Beloved, Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just some guy on social media who can give you cool, feel good cliches, not a self help guru or an influencer. He's God. His words have weight. They have authority. They change lives and change hearts. Beloved, that is bedrock upon which to build your life and build your faith. Let's do this. Let's take just a minute to sit with Christ and consider. I want to invite you very specifically, very specifically right now, I want to invite you to speak to the Holy Spirit and ask him to speak fresh to you. Ask him to go back to that area of your life that you are just not willing to submit, to pick at that scab afresh. I know that's a painful thing. Like, it's a big ask, but I want to invite you to do it. Holy Spirit, what are the areas of my life where I just do not want to submit to you? Sit with that for a minute. And if you can do that in your chair, that's awesome. If you want to find some space to get on your knees, I'd encourage you to do that. If that feels like too much, you're just feeling the weight of something right now and you need someone to pray with you please come find one of our pastors we're around the room we are here for you you can be you can be brave and bold and you can tell us there's no judgment we'd love to help you bring that to the Lord I want you to take a few minutes and I want you to be real with Jesus As don't miss another opportunity to move past the edge of the crowd to move past the cliches to move past the words and to actually do something Let Christ invade your heart. Let him show you who you really are. See what you find there.